We're back in our Matthew series this morning, so grab a Bible, and if you don't have one with you, just raise a hand, um, and one of the gentlemen at the back there will uh, bring one round to you. You're definitely going to want to have a Bible with you as we uh, navigate our way through the territory we have. The text that we've got in front of us today um, flows right on from where we left off last week. Uh, You will remember Jesus has just sent out his 12 disciples on their own for the very first time. He sent them out to share the blessings that they have received uh, so that the world around them might be blessed in the same way. And that's what the kingdom of God always looks like when it comes, isn't it? That's what we've been learning as we've been working through the book of Matthew. God's people are blessed so that they can bless others. We have been blessed so that we can bless others. That's the reason why we exist. I wonder whether you... um, Wake up and uh, think like that when you look in the mirror in the morning. There's a reason to it other than just getting through the day. The reason for it is that we can pass on what God has given us to others. But this part of our text in Matthew also marks the beginning of something new. Uh, You might remember a few weeks back, uh, Rod explained how Matthew carefully arranges his account of Jesus' life and ministry into five books. I wonder whether you pick that up. Each one of these books in Matthew begins with a long section of narrative, a kind of journalistic account of Jesus' ministry. Uh, And then it moves on from there into a section of teaching. Jesus actually on the stump telling us what it is that he wants to communicate. Um, And then after that, uh, it finishes with a concluding statement, which always sounds a little bit like this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and then that statement leads on into the next book. We're going to join the story today right at the uh, point where it flips over from book two to book three. And you'll see that in the very first verse of the text that we're going to read when I read it in a minute. Uh, Matthew 11 verse one concludes book two with a variation on that uh, classic phrase of Matthew. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And as we go through Matthew's gospel, we find that pattern is repeated. Each book begins with narrative, with kind of journalism. Uh, It moves on into teaching, and it concludes with a version of that same phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, until we reach chapter 26, verse 2, at the end of book 5, when uh, Matthew tells us that when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he says to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is just two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So do you see that Matthew's taken a lot of care uh, to structure his gospel in five books? And as Rod explained, he does that for a reason. Um, Because Jesus isn't the first great teacher in Israel to have that uh, structure to his teaching, is he? Matthew wants us to see the connection between Jesus and Moses, the greatest leader of the Old Testament Matthew wants us to see that in every department, Jesus is cut from the same cloth that Moses was cut from, but that in every department, he excels Moses completely. That far from merely offering a picture of what God's kingdom would look like when it came, which was Moses' ministry, Jesus comes to actually bring it. And that turns out to be the central issue at stake in our text today. So will you stand with me to read uh, out of respect for the fact that these are the very words of God? Uh, We're going to read Matthew 11 verses 1 through 15. 
Matthew 11, starting at verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been laying hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Take a seat. That's our text for the day. And we're actually going to be working our way through all the way to the end of chapter 11. So I'll be reading you uh, segments of the uh, succeeding verses as we go along. But do keep that passage open um, and that will stand you in good stead as we progress here. I wonder whether this is a part of Matthew's gospel that you've ever had the chance to really think about seriously before. The first six verses of it are extraordinary, aren't they? We're told that while John the Baptist was in prison, he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus the following question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Hold that thought. I'm going to back off here. We haven't prayed. That's not a good way to start. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we just don't want to come before uh, you and your word without coming very explicitly on our knees. Jesus, you need to teach us and we need to learn. Um, And we pray so much that you would just humble our hearts, uh, open our ears, uh, just show us uh, the place where you would have this word really hit home this morning. Pray that you'd be present by your spirit, the same spirit who caused this to be written. uh, Lord, that we might hear the words of Jesus, just the way that they fell on your original hearers and that they might speak. So we pray it for his great name and for his glory. Amen. Okay. Right. So uh, John asked this amazing question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Later on in Matthew 14, uh, we learn why John is in prison. He's been imprisoned by uh, Herod for calling Herod out Uh, for his immoral lifestyle, um, for marrying his brother's wife. And Herod had responded in the way that all self-respecting despots do. Uh, He locked him up. And in prison, it seems that John had started questioning Jesus's identity. We all know, even from the way this gospel is divided into five books, who Matthew thought Jesus was. 
He tells us that John was moved to ask this question um, because he heard about the deeds of Messiah. Can you see Matthew making it really clear even in our text who he thinks Jesus is? But it's a kind of strange disjunction, isn't it? That when we hear Jesus was doing the deeds of the Messiah, John was wondering whether he should be expecting somebody else. What in the world's going on? Well, I think the solution lies in understanding uh, John's expectations for the Messiah. The more that John heard about Jesus's ministry, the more perplexed he seems to have become. Um, He saw a disconnect between what he was anticipating and what he actually saw. Picture John maybe a bit like a, a local official stationed on one of the United States minor outlying islands. Uh, awaiting the arrival of a new governor sent from Washington. One day someone arrives in a helicopter bearing the American flag and takes up residence in the governor's mansion. But he doesn't act in quite the way that was anticipated. The expectation was that he would be somewhat high-handed and distant, uh, but he's familiar and friendly. Uh, The expectation would be that he would come and crack down on criminals, uh, but actually he socializes with them. And so when the local official hears about the deeds of this new governor, well, it's logical that he would write and ask, isn't it, whether he is the one who was to come or whether they should be expecting somebody else. That makes sense. And John's problem is just the same. Jesus was not what John expected. But what had John expected? Well, the answer is that John had expected Jesus to be bringing with him the end of the world. In Matthew chapter 3, we heard it in John's own words, didn't we? When the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to John in the desert, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water, for repentance. But after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was expecting what we talked about when we looked at Matthew's chapter uh, 8 and 9, the immediate indiscriminate outpouring of the new wine of the kingdom. And he was doing his best to prepare for it, wasn't he? John's baptism was all about repentance. Confess your sins, said John. Acknowledge your need. Get a new heart. He understood that when that new wine of the kingdom came, it would destroy anyone who wasn't first made new inside. But what John doesn't seem to have understood is that at his first coming, Jesus' mission was all about making that inner transformation of the heart possible. Jesus was reserving the pouring out of the new wine for a second coming in the future. And we can uh, look at that and make of it what we will, but I think John can definitely be excused for making that mistake. Unless you read the prophets of the Old Testament really carefully, That's the expectation that they appear to raise, isn't it? When God's new governor, the Messiah, comes, it looks like he is going to come and wrap up history in one fell swoop. Just take the first few verses of Isaiah 61 as a classic example. Uh, We know these fairly well as a church. Uh, The Messiah says, when he comes, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me 
because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. When Messiah comes, he'll bring the day of God's vengeance. That's certainly the expectation that Isaiah seems to create, isn't it? But are we sure we're reading it really carefully? Listen to the way that Jesus handles that text when he preaches on it himself in Luke chapter 4. See if you can spot the difference. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue. As was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a powerful moment in Jesus' ministry. But did you spot the difference? Jesus stops at the year of the Lord's favor, doesn't he? We all know that the day of God's vengeance comes next in Isaiah's original text. But Jesus doesn't read that part. Why? Because he wants us to grasp exactly that point. The day of God's vengeance comes next. It comes after the year of the Lord's favor. And the year of the Lord's favor that Jesus proclaimed right there in Nazareth has lasted 2,000 years so far. Jesus saw clearly what the prophets only hinted at, that the reestablishment of Eden would be a tale of two comings. The first coming was what John and his contemporaries were actually witnessing, God coming in person to make a way for sinful people to be part of his restored kingdom. But the second coming is what we still await, God coming to pour out the new wine indiscriminately in blessing and judgment. God coming to return the earth to its created state. And it was John's difficulty in grasping that distinction, I think, that lay at the root of his question. But there was more to it, wasn't there, than just a technical misunderstanding uh, about what the prophets said. I think it's important for us to see this. The question of whether Jesus was or was not the Messiah was not some dry academic issue for John the Baptist. It wasn't just the difference between getting a B plus and an A in his apologetics final. John had devoted his entire life to the service of Jesus in the belief that he was the Messiah, like many of us have. John had given away his entire ministry to Jesus on the basis that he was the Messiah, saying, go follow him. He must become greater and I must become less. John had gone to jail out of allegiance to Jesus the Messiah. He was about to lose his life out of allegiance for Jesus the Messiah. Just think what it must have done to him inside now to doubt uh, that fundamental reality. And not just to doubt it inside, but to get to such a point of doubt with it that he felt he had to share that with his disciples and have them go ask Jesus on his behalf. Terrible. If you've ever wondered whether doubting the fundamentals of your faith can be part of the life of faith, you need to hear how Jesus deals with this. 
Jesus is about to tell us that John stands preeminent above all the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament. And yet this was his reality. John reached a point of such profound crisis that he doubted whether Jesus was the Christ at all. Jesus' response to him is very striking. It's compassion. Jesus said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In the first part of this, Jesus daisy chains together a series of Old Testament texts to explain his behavior. Uh, John had got himself fixated, hadn't he, on the things that Jesus wasn't, but uh, uh, Jesus wants to correct that. John was thinking, Where's, where are the fireworks? Where's the judgment? But Jesus wants to call his attention to the things that he is actually doing and help him review those. The blind receive sight. Isaiah alone makes that the hallmark of the Messiah's ministry four times. The lame walk. That comes from Isaiah 35. The deaf hear. That comes from Isaiah 29 and 42. The dead are raised. That comes from Isaiah 26. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. That comes from Isaiah 61 that we read earlier on. So to put it crudely, it's as if Jesus is saying to John, look, how many other people do you know who were doing all this stuff that's prophesied about the Messiah? If I can do all these things, do you think that I can't bring the judgment also? Believe that I'm the guy and let me worry about the timing. And then Jesus rounds it all out with this beautiful final phrase, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus knew that John had his expectations misset, but he doesn't castigate him for that. Instead, he reassures him, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of what I am like. And that phrase, blessed is the one, takes on extra significance for us now, doesn't it? Now that we're reading this in the light of everything that's gone before in Matthew. Do you remember where that phrase has cropped up nine times previously? Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is like the 10th beatitude. Far from telling us that doubters don't have a place in God's kingdom, Jesus is telling us that doubters who keep on putting practical trust in him despite their doubts are the very heartbeat of the kingdom. That kind of faith, faith that won't give up, even when it's confused by the things that God says and does, that's the real stuff. That's childlike dependence, and that always marks members of God's family. Faith isn't having all the answers, but it is a determination to keep trusting God, even when what he does doesn't uh, seem obviously right in our minds. Faith is ready to believe that God may see further than us. He may know better. I had a great example of this actually down um, uh, in our church family, and we were talking about it as a church staff a few weeks ago, when... um, uh, Missy and Jeremiah Wiseman had this court case come up in Zambia for the adoption of um, Tizri, their now daughter, which is fantastic. Um, but they had this court case all set up, uh, hoping that that would be the day when actually uh, a legal custody of Tizri would be passed over to them. And it just went like a complete train wreck. Um, the father who had to come out of jail in order to uh, uh, hand over uh, a responsibility for his daughter refused, said that he'd never heard about it. The whole thing looked like it was disappearing down the drain. That's not what they were expecting. 
You're thinking that you worship the all-powerful God. You expect to go to something like that and just have it work. And yet faith said, even though I don't know why God has let this happen, I still trust him. That's faith. And that's the kind of faith that, John commend, that Jesus commends here and encourages John the Baptist to model. That story worked out really, really well. Uh, just a week later, um, the tables turned and uh, they do now have custody of um, Tisri, which is fantastic. All that leads us on, then on into verse 7 of our text. John's disciples uh, take Jesus' answer back to him. And Jesus now turns to the crowd. Uh, he wants to use this incident with John uh, to develop a teaching point that's going to last us through to the end of the chapter now. This next little piece of our passage is actually quite complicated. And I think Jesus makes it like that intentionally. Did you notice that phrase that he adds in in verse 15? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That's a characteristic expression that Jesus uses when he's saying something that won't make a ton of sense to us. And yes, we're already resolved to submit to him unless we're already exercising that faith that isn't uh, so fixated on things working out exactly the way we think they should. Jesus isn't trying to correct his audience's misunderstandings here. Surprising though it sounds, I think Jesus' goal was to highlight their misunderstandings as a warning uh, to people who did get it. And that includes us, hopefully, as we listen. So what is the misunderstanding that we're dealing with here? It's not the same as the misunderstanding we just saw with John. John, you'll remember, expected Jesus to do more than he had planned for his first coming. John didn't grasp the fact that Jesus had come to make a way for people to enter his kingdom before he returned to judge. John didn't grasp the fact that Jesus had come to pay our debts and offer new wineskins to all humanity before restoring Eden in all its fullness. But the crowd in front of Jesus had the opposite problem. What they wanted uh, wasn't more than Jesus had planned for his first coming. They wanted less. They didn't see their need for new hearts at all. Thank you very much. The crowd in front of Jesus wanted a superficial savior. And as we work our way through to the end of this chapter, I think we're going to see that their error was far more serious. Jesus draws attention to the crowd's problem with a a rhetorical question that he uh, repeats three times. He asks them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? His first suggestion is a a reed swayed by the wind. And certainly there were reeds to see down by the Jordan where John was doing his baptizing. Uh, But we all know that the answer that Jesus is expecting here is no. Uh, These reeds are a metaphor, aren't they? Delicate and flexible. They were everything that John the Baptist wasn't. (laughs) Jesus' next suggestion is that they went out to see a man in fine clothes perhaps like the uh, refined and manicured public speakers of their day, uh, the sort of person that uh, Jewish society looked up to, a kind of anointed opinion leader character. But that wasn't exactly John the Baptist either, was it? No, Jesus is poking fun at the crowd's superficial preferences here. He knew that the delicate and flexible leaders of their day were much more to their taste. He knew that they'd much rather listen to someone who looked impressive than someone who actually told them the truth. But John was none of these things. And uh, Jesus gets to his third iteration of the question and it becomes really clear that that's what he has in mind, isn't it? John was rough, tough, opinionated, unconventional and beneath the dignity of many. 
And all that adds up to what? Well, just like beard, staff, and pointy hat adds up to wizard in our minds, uh, in the minds of Jesus' hearers, rough, tough, opinionated, unconventional, and beneath the dignity of many added up to prophet in the minds of Jesus' hearers. And not just any prophet. We already know from John's appearance and the place where he did his preaching that he came to fulfill this prophecy that one like Elijah uh, would return before the coming of Messiah. We see that in verse 10 and verse 14 of our passage. But before we get to that, things turn complicated. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been laying hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What does that actually mean? I think Jesus does something here that only the most deluded egomaniac would do if they weren't actually God. Jesus divides the whole of history up into two great eras. The time up till the beginning of his public ministry and the time since his ministry began. And he says that everything in the first era, everything that happened from the beginning of time until the point that he stepped up onto the stage is mere preparation. The prophets and the law, he says, all point to what's happening now. And then very cryptically, he explains how. First of all, he uh, says that the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And that is what the prophets and the law and all that first era teach, isn't it? After the fall, the kingdom of God, that whole idea of God's people living in God's place, experiencing his blessing, all of it was subjected to violence. Abel, a little symbol of God's kingdom there in Genesis 4, is murdered by his brother Cain. The people of Israel, a little symbol of the kingdom in Exodus 1, are oppressed and enslaved by Pharaoh. Under the kings, Israel was attacked and threatened with annihilation by the Canaanites. The first era of human history, as Jesus divides it up here, teaches us that since the fall, the kingdom has consistently been subjected to violence. The world does not like it. But Jesus tells us that that's not the whole story. The kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, but violent people have also been laying hold of it, he says. And that rings true to the history of that great first era as well, doesn't it? God's kingdom was held down and manacled by Pharaoh, but God broke through those chains and reestablished it in Canaan by violently overcoming the forces that opposed it. God's kingdom was threatened with annihilation again in David's time. But God's king stepped forward and killed the giant who was threatening them. One man fighting on behalf of all. The first era of human history, as Jesus divides it up, teaches us that though the kingdom of God has been subjected to violence ever since the fall, a contrary violence has always been present with the intention of taking it back. And that's how Jesus wants us to understand the second era now in his analysis. Jesus tells us that that whole first era just foreshadows uh, the era that he now stands in. All the law and the prophets prophesied until John, he says. They pointed forward to the time of my own ministry. In Jesus' opinion, all the advances and reverses of the Old Testament did not much more than dramatize the underlying problem of human rebellion against God 
and uh, uh, they serve to direct our minds towards the solution that God will one day bring. But now in Jesus' life and ministry, that solution is afoot. It's actually happening. Since the garden, says Jesus, the kingdom of God has lain in ruins. Men and women have uh, endured violent oppression and have inflicted violent oppression on others, all of it flowing out from the oppressive power of our belief that we can replace God. But now in the era of Jesus' life and ministry, an opposite kind of violence is now contesting that oppression with a power that cannot be resisted. In the Gospels, we see Jesus wielding a power so terrible to the forces of evil that they're literally reduced to cringing subservience before him. They all know the violence that he intends to let loose on them in the end. In a few brief months, Jesus is going to face death itself on the cross and tear his way back through it into the garden. A few weeks after that, he'll found his church and send it out to draw the sting of the Roman Empire itself. Jesus is telling us, if we have ears to hear it, that right there in first century Palestine, he was engaged in the violent reconquest of creation for God. It's not a picture. It's the real thing. And Jesus wants people who see it to join with him, to cast off superficial concerns and to get to grips with the battle that will define our times. That's exactly what his disciples were doing, just at this very moment that he was speaking, wasn't it? In chapter 10, remember, he sent them out like sheep among wolves, reminding them that he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. Like the disciples then, we're being invited to join Jesus in the violent overthrow of human self-sufficiency. But it's really important as we try and digest this, that we make uh, efforts to understand the kind of violence that Jesus is asking us to embrace. When Rod and I were studying this passage together earlier on this week, which is always a real joy, one of the fun things about sharing a series together is that you um, uh, get the chance to uh, get into the text as a team. Um, uh, Rod told me about a bumper sticker that he saw recently which said, God, guts, and guns. Made both of us want to wretch. That's not the gospel. God's kingdom does not come by Christians resorting to the same tactics the world uses. God doesn't fight chaos with chaos, does he? It's right there in the first chapter of Genesis. God fights chaos with light. Jesus talks like he does here in Matthew, because he wants us to see the contrast between the violence that has oppressed God's kingdom since this fall and the violence that will one day win it all back. Picture Jesus may be uh, like a good man proposing to a woman who's been systematically abused in her past and saying something like this. Beloved, you knew someone with a violent inclination to bring you down and humiliate you, but I offer you a violent determination to build you up. You knew a violence fueled by selfishness and instability, but I promise to violently pursue selflessness and stability. You knew a violence that stepped into your purity and brought chaos. I promise you a violence that will step into your chaos and bring purity again. For those of you who are more visually minded, the picture that we're going to put up on the screen here might capture it. That's a Banksy mural. I'm actually just a couple of streets down from where um, Chris and Emily Rolls live in Bethlehem. Isn't that an interesting image? Um, He calls it flower chucker. Um, 
That's the kind of violence with which God is restoring his kingdom and wresting it out of the hands of the forces who oppose it. It's fierce, it's principled, and it's deep-rooted. It's implacably gentle, ruthlessly selfless, relentlessly merciful. Does that make sense? It should if we've been uh, paying careful attention to the life and ministry of Jesus as we've been going along. We're being invited to follow in his footsteps as soldiers in an army that's retaking creation. Have we got ears to hear that? Do we want to be part of that? Just the opportunity that we had to pray for all these families engaged in uh, fostering and adoption just nails that, doesn't it? Isn't that the violence that Jesus is calling for? Stepping into the chaos with light. You better believe that that requires fierceness and determination to make it happen. But it's fundamentally constructive and remaking rather than destructive and uh, unmaking, isn't it? That's... Uh, The fingerprint of God. Bless God for these families in our midst. As I said in the introduction to this section though, Jesus was not expecting this message to make much of an impression on his audience. Because he knew that this was not the kind of message they wanted to hear. However real, however important this news about uh, the coming of the kingdom in human history, Jesus knew that the people in front of him wanted something just a lot more bite-sized. And so in verse 16, he says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I must admit... I've never sat down and thought too hard about that passage before this week. And it surprised me when I did. uh, Because I guess I've always just assumed that what Jesus was doing here was likening himself and John the Baptist to these children who he imagines uh, crying out in the marketplace. Because it's Jesus and John the Baptist who have the two contrasting styles, isn't it? Jesus coming eating and drinking, uh, John doing neither. And it's the audience who seem pleased with neither. But Jesus doesn't actually say that, does he? Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out. So what does Jesus mean? Think also about what the children in the story say. They say, we played a pipe for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't mourn. Is that a reasonable complaint? If you hear a jolly tune in the shopping mall, does that really make you joyful inside? If you hear sorrowful music on TV, does that really make you mourn? Of course not. So do you see Jesus is giving us an insight into the expectations of his audience here? This is their whole problem. Superficial is sufficient for them. There doesn't have to be a deeper reason for the things that they do. There doesn't have to be any underlying conviction. They're not concerned about whether there's a battle out there that's worth fighting. Jesus is speaking to people who genuinely believe that skin deep is deep enough, if genuine belief isn't dignifying it too much. For them, playing a happy tune really is a good enough reason to be happy, and playing a sad one really is a good enough reason to be sad. They don't care about anything properly. It's as if they've managed to somehow anesthetize the part of their hearts that deals with the question of significance. 
And so they've got no interest in Jesus' summons to battle. It's not making them feel anything. I don't know about you, but I feel we have a lot of this in the Western church these days. When I myself meet people in the hallway uh, after the service, how often do I find myself talking about the cause of God's kingdom as if it's really real? How often do I find myself expressing real and knowledgeable concern about places where God's people are subject to violence, either physically or spiritually? How often does my conversation really show an interest in Jesus' plan to take it all back? Seriously, if all we can think of to talk to each other about is our boats and our clothes, we are no different from this crowd in Matthew's gospel, and we're not going to like what Jesus has to say to them in conclusion. How often am I really engaging in prayer at the level that Jesus is inviting me to engage here? Do I pray for my non-Christian family in the light of the coming kingdom of God? Do I pray for opportunities to speak to them and to live in a way that makes sense of the gospel for them? Do I behave the way that a soldier would behave, looking for opportunities to advance against an enemy who's camping on his property and holding his own loved ones captive? Or do my prayers frankly add up to little much more than uh, God bless my wife and children and help me get through the day? Would you forgive me for being a bit more specific and calling out, uh, calling our attention to the American church in particular here? I've just been back in England with dear friends of ours who are serving in churches there. And I was just struck again by the fact that the whole thing in England is on a war footing these days. Every single person in those pews knows that identifying themselves as a Christian has a cost. Their neighbors think they're credulous or delusional, idiotic, sub-rational, and yet they're willing to be there. A good friend of mine pastors a church in Scotland that's just been ejected from its building because the elders in the congregation refuse to hold multi-faith services. Rod and I visited a church in South London that has just 100 members 20 men in that church are in training for full-time gospel ministry. The question they're asking themselves is not, do you feel called to serve, but why don't you? Because the church in England, after sleepwalking into the abyss for the, during the 20th century, now finally realizes that being a Christian is not a game. No one in these churches is there because it's cool to be there or because it's a good place to meet people. People are in these churches because they realize that Jesus is God and he's calling us to fight for his cause. That's the message of our text, I'm afraid. And it's only intensified as we head into the final part of it. In chapter 11, verse 20, if you turn to that, Matthew tells us that at this point, Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles have been performed. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, all up on the, the northern shore there of Uh, Lake Galilee. Jesus told his audience that if the miracles he performed in these places had been performed in Tyre and Sidon or even in Sodom, he would have got more traction. That's a devastating critique from Jesus right there, isn't it? Tyre and Sidon and Sodom were not places you wanted to be compared to in Jesus's world. Tyre and Sidon were known as arrogant centers of wealth and privilege, the epitome of everything that God would come and overthrow when he returned to judge. Sodom, of course, we rightly remember for its immorality, 
But um, I remember Rod teaching us in the, uh, the Abraham series um, that the real problem was that they were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and that they didn't help the poor and needy. So that's a pretty bad reference point to be likened to, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't just say that the towns he visited were like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Jesus says the towns he visited were worse. Why? Well, because he's confident that if he'd performed the miracles he performed in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum in those places, they would have repented. Jesus wants us to see that repentance, turning back to God and admitting our faults, that's the natural response to the amazing miracles and signs that the people living in these places had seen. How so? Well, uh, just think about Peter's response uh, when he first met Jesus. And, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how it went. In Luke chapter 5, we learn that Peter first set his eyes on Jesus after an all-night fishing expedition that had uh, brought back zero results. Returning home, uh, Peter found Jesus standing on the shore. And uh, before he knew what was happening, his boat had been co-opted as a kind of impromptu teaching platform. Um, When Jesus was done speaking, he told Peter and his companions to put their boat out into the water for a deep, into the deep water for a catch. Peter protested, look, master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught a thing. But despite himself, he obeyed. And soon he and his partners had caught so many fish that their nets began to break and their boats began to sink. Now listen to his reaction. Luke tells us when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. That's the natural response. That's the response Jesus is looking for. Not because he's an egomaniac, but because he's God. When Peter saw this extraordinary demonstration of Jesus' power and realized who Jesus was, well, as soon as he realized it, he realized how totally out of place he was in Jesus' presence. And that's how it goes throughout the Bible when people meet God for real. When the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum saw the blind receiving sight, the lame walking and people with leprosy being cleansed, when they saw the deaf hearing, the dead being raised and the good news being proclaimed to the poor, they should have said with Isaiah, woe to us for we are ruined We are men of unclean lips and we live among a people of unclean lips and our eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But they didn't, did they? They said, show us another miracle, Vindikint. They liked the sensation that crammed in around these signs and wonders that Jesus performed. But they didn't give two hoots about what they signified. They totally missed the point. They were so locked into superficial that they couldn't see Jesus violently reclaiming the kingdom or hear his call to join him. And that same message just continues through to the final section of the chapter. In verse 25, Jesus turns to prayer. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. For sure, there's something deeply upside down about this, isn't there? The world rated the superficial people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum with their superficial opinions, wise and learned. And it still does today. Running around concerned with what people think of us, how we're going to pay next year's bills. That seems like the epitome of good sense to our world, doesn't it? 
But wisdom, as Jesus said back in verse 19, is proved right by her deeds. And by that measure, Jesus thinks a lot more highly of the wisdom of children. Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to the simple who can look at him and say simply, Lord, I saw what you did there. And I know what it means. You're God and I'm yours. And Jesus is looking for that childlike response in us. Jesus is looking for people who will live up to that blessing that he sent back to John the Baptist. People who keep trusting him even when he does things they don't understand. Or when things work out not quite the way that they expected. Bizarrely, it's that kind of simple faith that has ears to hear the nuances of what the coming of the kingdom really involves. It's that kind of faith that sees the fulfillment of all the expectations raised in the Old Testament in Jesus. It's that kind of faith that saw the kingdom of God held down and shackled until Jesus arrived and that now sees it breaking out and that sees being part of it as the only thing that matters. And it's that kind of simple faith which is actually rewarded with rest at the end. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. And isn't that the supreme irony? Because what is our super, uh, all our superficiality really in aid of when it comes right down to it? What is the purpose of our preoccupation with image and experience and worldly security? It's all about achieving a place of stability and peace, isn't it? Inner calm. Isn't that what all our striving is ultimately about? It's all about getting to a point where we can feel content in our own skin and where all the threats to that contentment are contained and managed. We want rest more profoundly than anything else. We want to be at rest. But Jesus tells us that if we really want rest, the only place we're going to find it is actually in abandoning our superficiality and coming to him on his own terms. Life in the end is only for the life losers. Rest in the end is only for the big risk takers. Because rest is a hallmark of the kingdom of God. Follow that word through the Bible and you'll see it. In Genesis 2, when the kingdom was created and the world was freed from chaos, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them rest. When the ark settled on dry ground in Genesis 8, we've got the same word. God gave Noah and his family rest. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, when God looked forward to Israel's journey to the promised land, God told them his presence would go with them and I will give you rest. And in Joshua, when they reached the promised land, that's exactly what happened. God's people experienced rest when the promises of the kingdom were fulfilled. In fact, even the most contemptible and the most despised found rest in that kingdom. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, found rest. Ruth, the Moabite widow, found rest. Because that's what the kingdom of God is like when it comes. It's all about rest. Whenever the kingdom promises were fulfilled in the Old Testament, rest was the result. In Exodus 20, we find that uh, even God rested in the complete kingdom on the seventh day. It's when the kingdom comes that we can really expect it. So do you see then that surrender to God and rest go together throughout the Bible? We can search all we will, 
for rest in the superficial pursuits and superficial concerns of this world, and we will never find it. If we really want rest, we need to come to Jesus like little children. We need to lay down our pride and our wallets and our calendars and join him in his work of violently retaking the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray in your powerful name that you would deliver us from superficiality. Something in us, something sick, tells us that safety lies there, and it doesn't. God, would you please give us faith to put our hand in yours, a faith that's willing to keep our hand in yours, even when you don't quite turn out to be what we expect, and walk with you towards the rest of eternity knowing that that's the only place that rest will ever be found. In Jesus' name, amen.